Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. Developers are supposed to be smart people. However, sometimes we do things that seem right in the moment only to have them blow up in our faces later. This is especially true when it comes to career decisions and office politics. Basically, any situation where you need to act in a way that protects your own personal power is ripe for disaster when you don't think before acting. In this episode, we're going to talk about a few things that we've seen that indicate a developer isn't really thinking things through well enough. These things often result in developers messing themselves up trying to do the right thing. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Just the keyboard, man. Just writing code and writing. Like that's mm. all I'm doing right now. Um, I'm, I, I know what I'm going to do when this book is done. Like I know what video game I'm going to play and how completely worthless I'm going to be for several weeks, but that is not anywhere close right now. So what that game? is, I, like I just, huh? What game? I'm going to play Factorio with the Angels mods and Bob's mods uh, add-ons and like, I'm going to basically make it just really, really hard. So that that's what I'm going to do. But that's probably at least a month away. Yeah, I, I understand. After this semester is over with, I'm going to spend some serious time. Uh, I'm going to try to finish up Breath of the Wild, at least like the main storyline. So uh, what's going on with you? We are so close to production on this app that I've been working on for quite a while. We're just waiting on the migration of the old system and sort of fixing issues coming up from missing data, just things that they didn't store that we're now storing that we're finding out, oh, right, we we're using that, we're requiring that, but they don't have that. So we have to work around it. And we're, we're tracking more with the new one than the old system. And honestly, it's a lot more complicated than I thought it would be. So if you guys remember, I talked a couple of weeks ago, um, I think it was on our Facebook Live, about uh, the group I'm in at church for creatives and uh, how I had put together this like production on uh, one of our assignments, which was to come up with the sound of red, the color red. That went over really, really well this past Saturday when I presented it to everyone. It was rather raw because I didn't have a whole lot of time to polish it uh, with you know, school and everything um, and working on podcast stuff. I just had a few hours to kind of put it together and get all the pieces in place. Uh, not a lot of time to really kind of make the transitions as smooth as I wanted. But I got everything in there I wanted, except for Lindsay Sterling. I, I just could not fit a sample of her into it. It didn't really fit with the flow and feel of, uh, of what I was putting together. Everything I tried just felt forced. But speaking of hearing sounds... I have something synesthetic for IOTs. So this is an article on an artist born in Belfast named 
Neil Harbison, and he suffers from a condition called achromatoplasia, which basically means he only sees the world in black and white. So in 2004, he became the first officially recognized cyborg when he had an antenna he calls an iborg attached to his head. Then later in 2013, he had it actually surgically implanted. So what the iborg does is it contains a sensor that senses colors and converts them into sounds that he hears through bone conduction in his skull. What he's done is he's taught himself to recognize and identify different colors based on the sounds they make. The really neat thing is the antenna also has Wi-Fi and Bluetooth capabilities, so someone could send him an image directly into his head. The scary thing, though, is the antenna has Wi-Fi and Bluetooth capabilities, so someone could hack his brain? Put an image in his head. (laughs) I mean... Yeah, <laughs> like there's the obvious thing. Yeah, it is really cool. Um, and so I've got the link to the article in the show notes. Check it out. Who's talking to us this week? Well, speaking of putting images into people's heads, uh, we got a tweet from Kevin saying, was a bit worried when Complete Dev Pod said they had a Valentine's Day IoT project on their latest episode. Thankfully, it was more safe than safe for work than I expected. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Kevin. Um, I... I love putting together those IOTs. Um, I try to make them relevant to either what's going on in the episode, what's going on in my life, or what's going on in the world around us. We lucked out in that we had enough time to prepare for Valentine's Day because we looked at the calendar a couple of weeks ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, as you do. <laughs> a lot of times when um, when we come up on a holiday, it's, oh, it's this holiday, we forgot or or, or like Thanksgiving have- every year. It's on a Thursday when we drop our episode every year. <laughs> and, and we have never had a Thanksgiving episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so this tells you just how important this is. Yeah. yeah um, so, uh, so, but, you know, hey, um, we do try to keep everything family friendly as much as possible. I mean, there's sometimes we have to have real conversations that you know, may not be as as PG as we'd like. Um, what we want, though, is for you to be able to listen at work or in the car with your kids and not feel embarrassed or not feel like you have to shut off the podcast. Or explain things. Yeah. But uh, Kevin, thanks so much for the comment. Send us a DM with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and possibly still Google+. I don't know when this episode will come out. Uh, We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. Check us out each week on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube Live. Where we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer a few listener questions. Actually, just this past week, we answered a live question, which was really awesome. We love it when we have people interacting with us on the show. You can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. This episode is brought to you by Clubhouse.io. Clubhouse is the first project management platform for software development that brings everyone together so that teams can focus on what matters, creating products their customers love. Clubhouse provides the perfect balance of simplicity and structure for better cross-functional collaboration. 
easy for people on any team to focus in on their work on a specific task or project while also being able to zoom out to see how that work is contributing towards the bigger picture. With a simple API and robust set of integrations, Clubhouse also seamlessly integrates with the tools you use every day, getting out of your way so that you can deliver quality software on time. As listeners of Complete Developer Podcast, you guys can sign up for two free months of Clubhouse by visiting clubhouse.io slash complete developer. While software development requires a fair bit of thinking, sometimes we as developers are completely blind when it comes to the realm of office politics and personal power. Because of this, many developers are relegated to unfulfilling careers that pay less than what they deserve with a lot less control over their personal lives than they might otherwise have. It's pretty common in the United States for senior developers to make a six-figure salary, yet many of them are treated in a way that doesn't match the esteem that their paycheck might otherwise command. In addition, a lot of developers will insist that they have no interest in office politics, but they'll be surprised when they find that office politics has an interest in them. As developers, we are required to work well with other people, and that often includes doing things to protect ourselves our mental health, and our own turf. This episode might be controversial in some quarters. Um, There's just not a good way to present this stuff without ticking somebody off. We're going to try to do it without without doing that. Uh, However, we ask that you consider our points carefully and think through this stuff and see where, where it applies for you. You don't have to come to the same conclusions that we have, but you should be aware of these things. We want you to resist doing these things to yourself, even if your worldview ends up being radically different than ours. Pay special attention to the ones that make you the most uncomfortable, because those are the ones that you're probably going to get hurt by. The first one, acting or thinking like a peon while expecting higher pay. Yeah, like my favorite example of this is when you have a senior developer, you know, you're talking dude makes six figures nice benefits, nice time off. You know, he he sits there and he goes, hey, I don't really like my chair. And they buy him a new one, right? That guy will go to management who is, you know, non-technical management and argue over how to implement a repository interface for 30 minutes with somebody that doesn't do tech. And all that person's hearing, you know, they're not hearing what they're saying. And it's it's really kind of a demonstration of lower value and lack of confidence, You know, the thing is, is you're a highly paid professional and you do not put your decisions up for review by somebody who does not understand them unless that directly impacts the result. Thing is, it's it's not about how you argue. It's that you set things up where your informed decision can be overridden. Right. It'd be like if you had a doctor, right? And let's say that Black Plague breaks out. Okay. Your doctor should not be asking you, hey, have you? Are you keeping the rats out of your house, right? Like, <laughs> and, and you shouldn't be overriding their decision that you probably shouldn't have rats in your house, right? You're, you've got a highly paid professional. Their opinion is informed. You don't let that override happen. But Will, I spent five minutes Googling it. I know better than the doctor who spent, you know, 15 years in school. Yeah. And I mean, we would not expect this out of other higher paid professions, although this does happen some we've got people that that don't listen to very obvious uh, serious medical advice, for instance. Um, the The other thing here is that when you argue as if abstractions matter more than the business case that you're trying to solve, you're kind of shifting things in a way that isn't favorable for you. The business people do not care about agile. 
They don't care about event sourcing. They don't care about proper object models, TDD, DDD, functional programming. They care about results that impact the business. So if you're characterizing things based on these abstractions, you're causing a problem for yourself because they're going to be resistant to it because they don't see how it helps. So I remember I we had a developer who he just he struggled with with agile but you know he just not a good fit. And sometimes that happens. But uh when he he left, I got pulled from my project and put on that team to help them finish up. They were towards the end of their project. And I go in and they had a couple of things they needed me as the API developer to do. So I'm talking with the business side and I'm trying to get some information out of them. And they had been used to someone who did that. He yeah. talked about all the technical things and I come in and I'm, I'm trying to get some information there. I, I I recognized what was going on because I've got friends that do this, that they they don't get the business side of things, but they can talk the technical side all day long. Yeah. And I'm like, I recognized what was going on. So I just stopped what I was saying and said, look, at the end of the day, my goal is to make your job easier. Here's how I'm trying to do it. What I need from you is this information to tell me how to do what I'm trying to do. I found out later that uh, the 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 head of the business team that was working with us really really liked that <laughs> yeah you know the the other thing about waving all the technical stuff around in a conversation is it's really easy to come across as a know-it-all and this can make the other party feel inferior right like they weren't so good with computers they're intimidated by them a little bit and you've got this guy going on about it like you care and it it makes people feel inferior and that makes them want to take you down a peg. And the the gist of it here is, is that ignoring other people's perception is an extremely dangerous game and it's not one you want to be playing. I mean, you could even be right. Yeah, but being right in the wrong way and in front of the wrong person is still wrong. As far as the consequences, it absolutely is. Maintaining perceptions is almost as important as being right. Yeah, and we're not saying that like you know, you have good perceptions and you're totally wrong, right? Like that's not where we're pushing, but we're saying that being right is only half the equation to being successful. Exactly. So, I mean, it's sometimes you have to let people save face. And we've talked about this in other episodes too. And sometimes you just have to recognize, hey, this is not the time or the place. That's what we're really, really getting at there. Next, giving away your advantages and being surprised when others don't do the same thing on your behalf. Yeah, and good developers are going to build, you know, practices and tools and ways of approaching stuff that make them more effective. Like that's part of your learning curve. A lot of them will promptly share it with the guy down the hall that's yeah, kind of uh overly flattering to management. Let's put it nicely. Brown noser. Yeah, brown noser, right? And you know, sharing is great, right? It helps the team, all this other kind of stuff. However, when you do it, you do need to do a few things. Uh one of which is you need to make sure management knows that mm -hmm. you did this and you made the team more effective because there are less skilled developers out there who don't learn how to make tools. They don't learn how to do things, but they learn how to brown nose and yeah. they will take the tool that you use, not tell anybody they'll get more effective. So now they're competing with you at a higher level and they schmooze with the boss and they never say anything in your favor. So you, you have to do what I do, which is you tell everyone and you do it. So in such a, excited, happy way that the boss can't help but no. find out about it. Yeah. It's like like they're they're gonna hear it because they're just gonna be like, what's the commotion going on outside my office? 
and they come out and they hear you going on about it. Uh, quick example, just this past week, yesterday, I was in the office. I found out we have a, uh, a locker room in our office. I didn't, I didn't know this. I've been working there for what, two, three years? Never knew it. Found out we have a locker room. I'm going around to everybody. Hey, do you know we have a locker room? This is so cool. <laughs> and it's not just things like that, but when I figured out logging, I was going around. Of course, I scheduled a, a dev chat. These are great things to talk about at dev chats because then you get that recognition. And you get the public speaking practice and you get a lot of other stuff oh, out yeah. of it. But I mean, even if you're not, even if you're, your company doesn't do that or you don't have that, like you're just way too introverted and shy to do that, going around and talking one-on-one with people, you, you talk to enough people, it helps. Yeah. And, and the big thing here is that a lot of developers are really unwilling to own up to their successes. You know, you're taught to be mm-hmm. humble and that that's a virtue. Um, but there's a difference between humility and keeping people in the dark about the value you provide. And if you, if your management is not aware of what you're actually bringing to the table, the next time there's layoffs, you're going to be among them. And it's one thing to give praise where praise is due. Sometimes you can overdo that. I've been guilty of that to the point that people thought that I was not competent. This was not in development. I mean, it it applies in other areas too. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like in interpersonal interactions, right? Humility is good. But, you know, when you're not advertising your value, that humility doesn't help you. No, this doesn't mean bragging. You, you, You need to use your previous success as proof that you can continue to provide success. Like bragging is, look at this really cool thing I did. Uh, right. What you want to do is, hey, check out this, this really neat solution or check out this thing that I found that we can use. Um, and providing or, value. Yeah. So it's not just look at how awesome I am, but it's, hey, look at this really cool thing that you can use too, that we can all use to make our lives better. Now, on the same note, humble bragging is worse than bragging. Yeah. You know, it's sitting there and going, you know, I always have this problem when I write multi-threaded programs in assembler. Um, that That's humble bragging, right? Like that, that's not... Everybody knows what you're actually trying to say, and and that's not a valuable thing. So be sure that your value is known, and that's that's really the point of this one. Now, the next one kind of goes alongside this, and that is letting your value be what other people choose to pay you rather than setting your pay higher. And this can be you know more than pay. It can be compensation, you know, attention, those kind of things as well. It's easy and safe to never ask for a pay raise, to never set things up so that you come out at an advantage, but it also really establishes low status. Watch out for behaviors or lack of behaviors that indicate this lower status and stop doing them. Yeah. And this can be anything from, you know, taking calls at 11 o'clock at night because they don't get a system working like it's supposed to and stable. So they just call you, right? You're showing that you have a low value, a low self-esteem by you're taking that call all the time. Always be moving towards raising your status in a slow, continual manner. Your pay is just one indicator of that. Your price is kind of capped at what the market will bear for your value, but that doesn't mean that you can't get other things. Just recently, Will and I were um, advising someone who has a good job that 
they get to work remote on and they're being recruited by another company that uh, is likely to offer them higher pay. But with that, they will have to go into the office every day. They were asking, you know, hey, I really don't want to. So we advise look at look at what it's going to cost you, you know, in time, in gas, in like all the different things. We just had an episode recently that came out about the cost of your commute. It was like, look at what that's going to cost you and make sure that the the extra you're going to get by leaving not only covers that, but is more. Yeah. And the other thing about this whole market theory thing, as far as your price being capped at you know what the market will take for the value you provide, it's for the perceived value you provide. If you're being overly humble and not letting that out, your pay will be lower than it should be. Going back to that story, what the other thing that we were, we were discussing with the person is if you if you say this is what you need and they that's a little too much for them, then you can say, all right, well, I will take lesser pay for working at home, still more than they're making now. Now, you remember that conversation. Yep. It was just the other day. Also, being shouted down as the only technical person in the room while the non-technicals promise the impossible. Yeah. If this happens, you're not properly expressing your value. And by the way, one of your values could be just leave. Yeah. But- don't let other people force you into something that like they're not having to eat the consequences of their decision. You are. This is really interesting because it's it shows a difference in personalities, more a difference in my my personality and your former personality. Yeah, a little bit. Like earlier in my career, I definitely yeah. I had a boss that would that was not technical and would promise stuff that just was not doable. Mm-hmm. And if you said, wait, we can't do that because like the tech isn't there for that, you know, he would just shout you down. And, you know, that was one of the worst jobs I ever had. And it was because of that. It's not, you know, I wasn't drawing a line and saying, no, I'm not doing this. Yeah. And that's real bad for your morale and everything else. Whereas I sometimes have to watch myself in the way I say, Hey, that's not possible. Or, you know, I've, I've come to a good balance with the, with most things they ask are possible. It's just, all right, cool. We can do that. Here's the cost. Yeah. And I've, I've gotten done this so much that it's almost expected. People come to me sometimes to go, Hey, what are, what are the, the costs to doing this? So they start the conversation that way. Yeah. And it's know really good to cultivate go. that. Yeah. Um, because then now they're coming to you mm-hmm. instead of them telling you. The The thing is, is you've got to remember that your tolerance for behavior, especially bad behavior, is essentially training people how to treat you, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you, it's like having a dog. If you have a dog that always jumps on you, you know, and you're not like knocking the dog off of you and countering that, essentially you're, you're teaching the dog to do that, that that's okay. If you're yeah. allowing people to treat you like garbage, it's your fault, that they continue to do so. Yeah. And you don't have to fix that all at once, right? Like if you're experiencing this, it's probably going to be pretty hard to fix mm-hmm. all at once, but you can fix little stuff. You fix the little behaviors that lead up to it. Next is setting things up where there is a winner and a loser rather than multiple winners. Yeah. Direct conflict is almost always a bad idea because somebody does lose. And if there's a winner and a loser, there's a chance that the loser's you. Uh, this is especially true when the other person has more clout and more power. So yeah. instead of doing this, instead of having the argument with the boss, figure out how to make the other party win by doing what you want to
to happen. <laughs> this this makes me think of uh, this Facebook thing that's going around. It's this riddle where uh, it uh, lists off these things and it asks like the first thing you do. And uh, even if you're being clever, they, they've got some other response. The way I got around it, I, I, I didn't cheat, but I got out on a technicality is uh, I, I didn't answer the riddle. I said, well, in that situation... Someone would have to do this before they could do that, or this before they could do that. And like, I threw out a couple of possibilities and stuff. And then the, the person who, who posted it was like, Oh, you lost. It's this is the answer. And I'm like, I never gave you an answer. Yeah. I was just discussing different things. And then she's like, Crap, you got me on a technicality. <laughs> but I was, I, what I'm getting at is, yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit of a tricky thing there. But I turned a win-lose situation into a win-win. Yeah, or at least not a situation that has a lose in it yeah. for you. Well, the, well, the, the thing is, what, it, what happened is I won because I got to find out what the answer to the riddle was. She won because she got to be smart about it, but I didn't lose by giving the wrong answer. Right. And you know that's the thing. This is how you create alliances at work. And mm -hmm. you should be doing this all the time, right? It's not because you're manipulative, but because alliances are necessary for work to actually get done. People have to trust you and they have to be able to trust you over a long period of time. You know, if you're going to build anything big, like that has to be there. Oh, yeah. I mean, if like our teams are a front end developer and a back end developer, I have seen teams, neither one of these people are, is there, but teams where they didn't trust each other. Yeah. And so the front end developer was completely lost because they never knew what they were going to get back from the API. The back end developer had some of the wonkiest code I've ever seen because he was trying to code around whatever the front end developer was going to send. And I've seen that too. And it, that is way more destructive than the alleged manipulation that goes into creating alliances and building trust and rapport. Mm -hmm. You should be compromising from a position of strength, right? Like build up a position of strength and you can compromise from there and you have the leverage to help yourself and others. If you're not in a position of strength, you're not compromising, you're just losing. So early on in your career, a position of strength is your knowledge, like learning, especially in the newer technologies. That's what, what helped me out the most was... Yep. You know, I got into some of the newer stuff and I got ahead of some of the more advanced people who had been building up, who had a really great knowledge of programming way beyond mine. They didn't know the new stuff. Yeah. That's sort of where I've, I've put myself because I like going to conferences. I like all the things that provide me that knowledge. So I've set myself up as, oh yeah, BJ goes to the conferences and then he comes in and talks about the new stuff in the language or the new things that we can do or this this or that yeah you can be a lot more magnanimous when you're able to right like you know for all the stuff that uh you know the tale of uh of scrooge right you know the, the ghosts of christmas past and present and future right for him to be able to help tiny tim he had to have the money to do it a position of strength gives you the option to actually help people and if you can do something you can always choose not to do it right like you can you can say i have the power to completely crush this person but i'm not going to if you don't have that power, your alleged decision not to is really just, you just can't. Learn to find a way to achieve the goals of others while making your own happen. Those people will help you protect your idea. 
Yeah, there's Most there's going to be competing priorities, right? Anywhere you go, like we deal with this on the podcast, right? Like we, you and I, mostly have the same view of things, but there's stuff that we want that's different, and we have to figure out, okay, how am I going to get that for you so that my idea goes forward? And and you and I both are pretty good about doing this, so it's not much of a problem. But in an office environment with you know forty or fifty people in there, competing priorities are always going to be in the mix. So you've got to figure out how to achieve the thing that the other person wants so that they win by helping you. Yeah, I mean, it's completely fine. And it's expected for you to have your own goals. But if you pursue them against others, you're going to have problems because then you're making it a competition. This reminds me of grad school, not the grad school I'm in now. But when I was my psych program, our class, and I'm friends with one of the professors, he, he tells me ours was still the only one that was like this. But our class was apparently the only one that worked together. Every other class that came in, they had this competition attitude where it was like, it was as if there were only so many A's to go out. And so, everyone was fighting for the top position. Whereas our class, I mean, I'm still really close with several of the people that I met in that class. Yeah. Um, and like you've met several of them too at parties and stuff. And it's just like, you know, we, we not only studied together, we became friends that lasted beyond. Yeah. And, and conversely, I've worked in development environments where, you know, there was that kind of dynamic going on and everybody had turf and it's ugly. Just mm-hmm. the stuff that people will do to each other and the amount of time that you spend mitigating the damage that somebody else can do to you. I remember in high school, um, there the AP physics class was like that, where the the teacher he was like, "All right, uh, two people will get A's, four people will get B's, so many people will get C's." Like, like he tried to create a bell curve. Yeah, and he was like, "It doesn't matter if you like if you do everything perfectly, still only three people are going to get A's or something like that." You know, it was just I ended up. Like I found that out, and the very next day, I went to the guidance counselor and dropped the class. I'm like, no, this is not right. This is yeah. not how you teach. Well, and there's people that do that with employee evaluations as well, right? Oh, yeah. Like you can't, you know, only so many people can get a five. Mm-hmm. Uh, teacher evaluations in some schools are that way, and it like the kind of backbiting environment that creates. Like you, you have an evaluation specifically so that you can try to have metrics so you can improve. And they just did something using the metrics to make it worse. It makes it, it makes the metric useless. Yeah, it really does. And then you get into that competitive environment. Whereas, like I said, with grad school, we weren't competing against each other. We were helping each other out. Yeah. You know, I've got a solid math background. I helped out some of my friends get through statistics. They have backgrounds in other areas. They helped me through some of uh, our other classes, you know, and it was just, it was one of those things where we got together. I I loved it. Um, I sent a message to uh, one of the girls I was in class with. It was uh, her birthday recently. And I sent her a message for her birthday. I was like, hey, I'd love to get together with you and your husband again. I miss those uh, drunken nights at the bowling alley after tests where we'd all go bowling and just sit and drink beer. Yeah. So number five is believing that your employee handbook contains the actual rules of your working environment. <laughs> Wait, you have employee handbooks somewhere? I don't. I mean, <laughs> we got them. I don't. You know, here's the thing: 
take that employee handbook and compare it to what actually happens in your environment. Okay, you're going to see that that's probably really not on point. Now, the differences might be real subtle or they might be real big, but there is always a difference. The thing is, some rules can be bent and others can be broken. And it depends on who is doing it Right, a lot of times. Because Neo can break all the rules. <laughs> yeah, so like if you see somebody that is consistently able to bend certain rules, there's going to be some kind of reason for that. It's um, more dangerous. Maybe they haven't gotten caught, oh, yeah. but you know... It could also be that, hey, they're they're the boss's nephew. Yeah. You know, it's also more dangerous for you to mention this kind of rule breaking than it is for them to break it. And it may be something you don't mention it to management, but you mention it over on the side as a, you know, I, I think I saw this happening. And then someone goes, oh, yeah, they're the boss's nephew. They're allowed to get away with that. Yeah. Where this gets really frustrating is... When you have someone who is consistently incompetent and it doesn't matter, like you go up the chain and it doesn't matter how high up the chain you go, they still like nothing happens. They you, like excuses get made, things like that. And you're like, what? but your name gets noted. Yeah. And then you become the problem. And, and the big thing here is um, it's great to know the rules. Just don't use them for prediction. Use your experience, not the rules for predicting how people are going to behave. Now, this doesn't mean that you can go around breaking rules. It means you don't make plans expecting others to follow the rules. You know, sometimes you can bend the rules too, especially in extraordinary circumstances. Um, I think back to when, uh, before my workplace went remote, when we were coming into the office every day, we... We got to the end of a project and just got slammed with, oh, we didn't think about this and we need this report and we need to be able to do that about a month before it was due. And uh, our director asked uh, the lead, it's like, well, do I need to get them like a conference room for the, the two developers to sit in and just work, work on this? And he's like, no. It's like, you want to get the most work out of them? Send them home. Yep. Those two guys, they will give you two days work in one if you send them home. And she did. And we, we worked our butts off. We worked, you know, a lot extra and we got it done. And here's the other point that really matters as well is even if you play by the rules and you're a decent person, that doesn't mean that everybody is. There's a certain percentage of the population that are narcissistic or they're sociopaths or they've got some kind of, you know, they've got some kind of personality thing going on. Mm -hmm. And even the golden rule is broken by some percentage of the population on a regular basis. And that's the easiest one to keep. So next is believing that ideals overcome incentives. Oh yeah. man, sorry. I, I kind of chuckled there because I have seen this so much. And it's spectacular when it blows up too, isn't it? Oh yeah. Because the look of surprise on people's faces is just ridiculous. You know, the thing is, is that should does not overcome is paid for. You know, you used a term. Oh, it was early in our podcasting career where you said you just should all over yourself. I use that at work and um, it wasn't the, uh, the tech people. It was in a meeting and one of the business people, he almost fell on the floor laughing so hard. He's like, I love that. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> yeah. 
you just shoo it all over yourself and the stain is going to stay forever. Yeah. Um, let's say that you want to go to a microservice architecture. Don't explain it as cleaning up the code. Explain it as enabling something that makes money. You really need to be That's able to different. back your technical opinions with business reasons or don't offer them because the business people aren't going to understand. It goes back to what I was talking about before where I said, my goal is to make your job simpler so you can do it better in that meeting because that's what got their attention. And that's what ultimately got me the information I wanted was when they weren't trying to fight me on technical stuff. They were, oh, you need me to give you the, a spreadsheet with this information in it. I'm like, yes, that's what I need because I need to be able to sort it and go through it and, and figure out how to manipulate it. Now, the other thing is, is don't expect people to understand something when they're getting paid not to. Mm -hmm. um, and this goes, you know, this can be just about anybody in, in any office, right? Like you'll have people that are technically incompetent on purpose. They don't want to be competent in the tech because they don't want to do it. I've run into people and, like that. Yeah. And, and like, don't try to make them competent. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Now, you'll also run into this with established developers, right? Like you'll run into somebody that has worked at the same place for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever. And they've continued to be paid to do things in a way that is kind of old and doesn't really work all that well anymore. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to convince them to do it in a new way unless it actually helps them because they're comfortable. You know, if a developer hates SQL and has gotten by without it so far, you're not going to have a lot of luck getting it there. Now, the other thing here is that when you run into a situation where stuff is tangled up, messed up, screwed up, whatever, you have to figure out the incentives that created that if you want to actually untangle it and keep it that way. So, for instance, um, if the code base is a mess because developers are incentivized to do stuff quickly and cut corners, there's no amount of protest on your part that will clean up the code unless the developers get different incentives. I've seen this. I've made a career out of cleaning that up. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not where I work now, but um, actually not even in development. I saw this, the graduate practicum I did because the students, each group of students had their own filing system. And rather than learn the existing system, it was faster for them to just create their own because they weren't dealing with older uh, patient files. Right. And so nobody minded if you went in and like, it was hard to find things. You had to find someone that had been around for a while that could find the files for you. And then like a lot of times it was knowledge transfer and it, oh man, it was, it was confusing. I think I've told this story where uh, because of the school zone schedule and stuff, I ended up getting in 30 minutes early. It was either get in 30 minutes early or get in 10 minutes late. And so yep. I just took that time to redo the filing system. <laughs> yeah, you, you realign the incentive structures and all the other stuff gets easy. Oh, it did so now, much. It's also true of disincentives. If your slower, more methodical developers are let go, you're not going to have those people. You're going to have the fast people that cut corners. Mm -hmm. right? And they're not going to want to be slow and methodical because they saw those guys get fired. Right. So the next one is believing that the most qualified person is the most likely to be promoted. And the real deal here is that you don't understand what constitutes qualified. Like if you're thinking, oh, it's technical prowess and all this, right? Like the tech manager should be the best coder. That's not mm -hmm. how that works. Like you get to a certain level and you have to change tactics to go to the next. Oh, yeah. I mean, this happened to me 
I am the more going back to the previous point. I am the slower, more methodical developer. And I'm still fast, but I'm going to I'm going to do it right. And that may mean I take a day to do something that takes someone else half a day. I'm also not going to overload my plate. I'm not going to say, oh, okay, I'll do it and then get stressed out because I've got 20 things to do and no time to do it. And so I got passed up for a promotion because there was someone else that would do that. And then that person left. And then they started having to deal with some of the problems from that because, you know, that's not always the best approach to things. So, yeah, I, I understand that. Yeah. And, you know, a mediocre developer that exhibits leadership skills is extremely valuable, right? They don't have to be the best at the tech. They have to be able to lead the team. Oh, yeah. I mean, if even if they're not the best at the tech, if they understand how to use people that are, that's one of the things I really like about my lead developer is she may not be the best at the newer tech, but she recognizes, oh, hey, VJ goes to conferences and he does this and he does that. So she'll give me assignments like, hey, I want you to go learn this and then come teach the team. I can't tell you how yeah, many times that's happened. And it's I love it because it's right up my alley personality wise. Well, and that, that leads into the next point, right? The yeah. person that gets promoted is the one whose promotion offers the best incentives to those doing the promoting. Right. Like, you know, if you're if you're making your boss rich, your boss is probably okay with paying you more. Mm-hmm. To to keep that going, you know, you feed the golden goose, right? And like what you said, what gets you to one level doesn't always work getting you to the next. So, right. in fact, it can get in the way. Yeah. So for me, having that technical prowess and knowledge and that methodical way of doing things was great. Getting in as a junior developer, like I, I outshined everyone else doing that. But going from there to the next level, I needed to speed things up. And, and be able to make compromises. Right. And looking and understand where those compromises needed to be. Now, looking at the next level, I'm looking at the the lead developer that I have. And I'm looking at her strengths and her weaknesses and areas that I can improve myself and how she moves up. I can move into that position. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is you've got to always be able to shift the perception of your technical skills, because if you are the best developer, you're not going to be promoted into management because then they have to replace you. Mm -hmm. And either they replace you with people there, but you're the best. So now it's more than one person or they have to go find this magical being out here somewhere to put in your office. And it's, it's not going to happen. You've got to realize that technical skills are a baseline for a good development job. They are not everything and they absolutely have to be cultivated. I'm not, you know, besmirching that at all, but they are the equivalent of basic hygiene. Like right. thinking that you're going to get promoted as a developer because you do clean code. That's like saying that you can get a date because you know how to brush your teeth properly. You know, now there's, there's places that that's probably true, but you probably don't want to live there. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, well, would you really want to date someone who is dating you just because you know how to brush your teeth properly? All four of them. Because <laughs> you know, that's really what the next thing is, right? Yeah. Speaking of the next thing, next is believing that other people are motivated in the same way that you're motivated. A naive understanding of other people will make you think 
that what motivates you will motivate them. Oh my goodness. This is something that I had to learn um, the hard way. Like this was something that just did not come to me easy. And we we've talked about it before, even among the best of friends, motivations vary. Like for myself, words of affirmation. I mean, we talked about this in our, our Valentine's day episode. You, you tell me I'm doing a good job. That motivates me more than almost anything else. Like the only thing that motivates me more than that is money. Yeah. yeah. So then I can go do, you know, do the things I want to do. Whereas what motivates will is completely different. Yeah. I mean, money helps. Right. Yeah. But like, I don't want to be bored and making a ton of money. Like I would rather, you know, maybe not quite make as much and the work be more challenging. Mm-hmm. That gets me further as far as how I feel about stuff. Cause I can make more money. Mm-hmm. Now, if you deal with other people as if they have the same motivations as you, it's easy to come off as clueless at best. Yeah. People with motivations different from yours can surprise you in some rather nasty ways, especially if you thought you understood what was going on. Yeah. And you planned based on your right. wrong understanding. For instance, you know, trying to motivate me with a flashy car, it's not going to do anything. I've got, I've got a vehicle that gets me where I want to go. I don't really look at it. I, I, on the other hand, me, especially when we were in college, because I drove sports cars a lot and I was like really into the, the fast cars and stuff like that. It, it was like completely different. You know, when somebody's not motivated by money and you offer them a pay raise for some, for doing something critical, they may disappoint you by not delivering. Yeah. Whereas somebody that's really motivated by money, yeah, they're right on that. Mm-hmm. So you got to figure out what the thing is before you make the the assumption based on it. Yeah. This usually means observing someone for a while. This is the origin of asking someone, where do you see yourself in five years? Because that tells you what motivates them. Right. Well, obviously, you know, in five years, you see yourself dating the girl that wants to date you because you can brush your teeth. <laughs> right? <laughs> just, to, just to bring that one back in. Uh, yeah. So, finally, we have believing that the chain of command is the most important or even primary way that things can happen. The chain of command is how things are supposed to work, but almost everyone has their own informal way of finding out what's going on. Informal communication networks carry more data than the formal ones. Yeah, because the formal ones, it's all status. And, you know, you might make somebody mad that that signs your check. Like that information is kind of blocked by the structure that you have there. So you cannot make the assumption that the chain of command is how anything actually works. Mm -hmm. Look for who goes to lunch together and who stops to chat. This is this is very important. Of course, then you got people like me. And Dave, too, that we'll go to lunch with just about anyone. Um, yeah, and I do that, too. Uh, that That is a good way to build your network, by the way, is don't eat lunch by yourself. Oh, yeah. Of course, I'm only in the office one day a week. So, I mean, I don't eat lunch by myself. I eat lunch with my dog, if that counts. But uh, when I'm in the office, I always go out to lunch with someone. And I, I feel bad. Like, we even have I, – I started a channel on our Slack called Lunch Bunch for us to plan lunches. Cause we used to go out as a group, especially when we we're in the office every day. Um, every Friday we'd walk down to the farmer's market. It's uh, a little less than a mile away. So it's a bit of a hike, but um, cause it's also up and downhill. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of a hike, but uh, yeah, we, we would go every Friday when we were in the office and it was awesome. It was great. Cause like, we just like this huge group of us would just like migrate down there during the week you go out with different people and stuff. And usually that group 
uh, on Slack, it would be, oh, hey, some of us want to go here and some of us want to go here. So we'd all kind of like walk out together and then people would go with different groups. It was awesome. Um, now I only get to do that about once a week, but uh, I still try to get to get lunch with everyone at least you know once every couple of months or so. Yeah, it's it's just a good idea. Um, if you don't do a good job cultivating your own personal sources of information inside of whatever organization you're working in, you're going to be supplanted by somebody else who does. Yeah. If you don't have good sources of information, it's easy to ask for a raise when the boss is in a bad mood. Yeah. Or to, you know, really step on something, you know, you make some little joke that it seems innocuous. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, you know, I, I made a comment about the the Black Death earlier, right? Well, what happens if you have somebody in your office whose kid got sick with that last year and you don't know? Yeah. And you make that joke. Yeah. I mean, there, there's that. Or if you complain about someone to the wrong person. Yeah. Like their best friend who sits at lunch with them. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, is a, the chain of command is an unnatural structure and it doesn't reflect how people really work together in the real world. You know, we as a species, we're hunter gatherers for a very, very long time. And the way we interact is, you know, just kind of a group thing. You yeah. know, it's all the people are, com- you know, they're not really competing. They're cooperating. It's a small number of people. People know each other. You know, that kind of stuff is going on and they, they figure out how to work together. There's not necessarily a, a leader and a top down mm-hmm. structure. There's probably somebody that's stronger than others and has more rapport with more people, but it's not rigid corporate you know, military style structure. And cause we don't have that in our natural history, we don't really deal all that well with it in a work environment, like any place where it actually works, it's artificial. Right. You know, a chain of command is really only as strong as its enforcement mechanism. So whatever is holding that chain together, which may be raises, may be getting fired, whatever the, the motivation there is. Right. So like in the military, you know, it's it's far stronger yeah. than it is in a company. And a lot of companies, you can go talk to the CEO. Mm-hmm. You could talk to the CEO in the lunchroom and be, you know, you could be a janitor and talk to the CEO of some of these companies and just be on a friendly basis. And that's completely fine. Like you're not breaking any rules by that. I'm reminded of um, a brewery near where you live and where I used to live that we went to a lot uh, when I lived there. And uh, they... They have a huge selection beer that they make in-house. And they have a thing where anyone that works there, they have a recipe, their brewmaster will look at it. And it could be the guy that cleans the toilets. If he's got a good recipe, they'll make it. And if it turns out to sell, well, he gets a kickback from that. So it's like he gets a benefit for it. And you want to talk about company buy-in. Like, yeah. I have a great job and I wanted to work there because of that. And I don't even brew beer. <laughs> right. You know, it's just yeah. like that. That's something that I'm like, I love that attitude that they have. Now, guys, let's be honest. This is ugly. We all have ideas about how things should work and they absolutely should, shouldn't they? However, to some degree, the stuff that we outlined in this episode is true in every organization. You may be lucky. And working somewhere where none of these things apply. However, you forget this at your own peril. Human group interactions will always have some amount of this stuff. Even if it isn't currently present, it can easily regress. 
your ability to achieve the kind of life and career that you want is dependent on your ability to understand the political currents in which you swim. If you act with understanding, you can create a much better life, but ignore them and you'll end up forever frustrated. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, it's just kind of a meta thing, right? Fairy tales are for children. Reality is for adults. You have to deal with stuff the way it is, people, the way they are, uh, organizational structures, the way that they are, you know, all this, this stuff that goes wrong, you've got to deal with it, right? Like in an ideal world, I don't have to worry about the OWASP top 10 web vulnerabilities. I just put a web page up and everything works like it's 1998. That's not the world we live in now. Really, we never lived in that world. It's just we were ignorant for a while and it caught up to us. So even though this sounds really harsh, this episode is hard to listen to probably for some of you. There is light and hope here. And the light and hope is if you understand that things do not work in an idealistic sense, you can make them better. If you believe that things work in an idealistic sense, you cannot because you're going to fail and you're not going to understand why you failed. This is an opportunity to look at reality and go, what can I actually do to make reality better? Instead of looking at reality and going, I don't believe that. I'm just going to keep on trucking the way that I think things should be. If you do that, you're not going to have success. However, if you sit there and you go, okay, let me have observable situations and let me look at it. Let me experiment. Let me get, you know, like legitimately apply the scientific method to my interactions with the rest of the world, then you can actually win, right? We had the beginnings of the enlightenment and all this technological change that we've had over the last, you know, half a millennium because we looked at the world as it was and we dealt with it as it was, not how we wanted it to be. And that's all I've got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.